Imagine the challenges faced by these early photographers. Beyond the bloody, painstaking process of preparing dead animals and bones for display in the hot Sydney sun with buckets, tubs and a basic set of tools, hammers, chisels, files and drills, they face the added technical difficulties of capturing their images one by one using the slow, cumbersome process of wet plate photography. Looking through the still sharp and clear detail of the glass plates, it's easy to imagine that every part of the process required not only skill and expertise, but also hard work, ingenuity, coordination and team effort. Museum photography was an activity that required many participants, as revealed by the shadowy figures who sometimes appear as a blurred ghostly presence in the photographs. The charm of these photos is in their human scale. These images acknowledge the human in scientific photography rather than concealing it. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. My name's Angus Dalton and today I'm taking you on an excursion. You just heard Vanessa Finney reading from her book Capturing Nature, Early Scientific Photography at the Australian Museum, 1857 to 1893. Vanessa is a curator and archivist who looks after Australia's oldest and largest specialist natural history archives at the Australian Museum. She also looks after the museum's rare books collection. Her new book brings together some of Australia's earliest natural history photographs and the specimens and stories behind them. The photos in the collection have never been released to the public. They include images of a freshly caught white shark with its mouth propped open to expose rows of jagged teeth, a gleaming taxidermied black-headed python curling around a branch, and striking images of the skeletons of wobbegongs, western gorillas and sperm whales. There's also a bizarre shot of a 3.4 metre long sunfish being hauled up into the sky so it could be pulled into an upstairs window of the museum after it was discovered in Sydney Harbour in 1883. Capturing Nature examines how the technology of photography revolutionised scientific understanding of our natural world in the 19th century, specifically in relation to a scandalous new idea being debated at the time due to the publication of a controversial book, Charles Darwin's The Origin of Species. Along with the book showing these never-before-seen images, Vanessa has put on an accompanying exhibition at the Australian Museum in Sydney, and that's where I'm headed to meet her. When you walk into the exhibition, you're greeted by the type of camera used by the museum in the 19th century. It's a large wooden box with a gold-coloured lens. The photographers at the museum used a method called wet plate photography. As Vanessa Lowe explains in the book, a film of cellulose nitrate and alcohol was spread across a piece of glass that was then immersed in silver nitrate, a chemical that darkens when exposed to light. The photographer would set up their subject, be it a 10 metre long whale skeleton or a tiny stick insect, in a well-lit area of the museum. They'd move the camera back and forth to achieve the desired framing and focus. A preview of the image could be seen by peering through a glass window at the back of the camera, but because of the way the light entered the camera's pinhole, the image was projected upside down and back to front. This made things challenging, to say the least. The piece of chemically treated glass was placed in a wooden frame which could be inserted into the camera. The lens cap was then removed and the photographer had to time the exposure perfectly. A few seconds over or under would result in a failed image after hours of work. The image wouldn't immediately be visible. A developer solution was poured onto the plate and then a negative image would form. 
This glass plate could be used repeatedly to print images on paper that had been soaked in egg whites, as the proteins in eggs bonded with the chemicals on the glass. Now I've simplified this method drastically, there are many more chemicals and processes involved, but for all its complexity this technique produced high quality photos that could capture the gleaming complexity of a tiny inch long fish, or the crack between the teeth of a fossilised diprotodon jaw. It was even used to capture the cells of fossilised coral specimens through a microscope. When you wander past the camera and into the exhibition, you come face to face with the skeleton of a western gorilla, reared up to its maximum height of 2 metres with its mouth wide open, exposing long, sharp canines. The specimens went on display in 1885, and both the gorilla skeletons and the photographs of them were provocative at the time, as Charles Darwin's theory of evolution was being hotly debated. Many visitors to the museum were unnerved to view these skeletons, as they suggested a strong resemblance to our own anatomy at a time when those in power fiercely rebuked Darwin's suggestions that we were evolutionarily linked to these great apes. In the corner, there's a photo of an Australian lungfish, and below it, a real preserved specimen. It kind of looks like a cross between a metre-long axolotl, a fat eel, and a koi fish. This creature has the ability to breathe above and below water. The museum's curator at the time, who features heavily in capturing nature, Gerard Kreft, gave the Australian lungfish its scientific name and brought the metre-long fish to the attention of Western science. Kreft, who was a fan of Darwin's work, thought it might be a missing link between fish and amphibians and sent photographs of the creature all around the world to great excitement and acclaim. Other creatures roaming around the room include a strutting cassowary posed for the dramatic portrait featured on the front cover of Capturing Nature, and a taxidermied quoll slinking away with a freshly caught rodent in its mouth for dinner. There are many species of fish, stingray, prawn and lobster in detailed black and white shots on the walls, and one of the most beautiful photographs is of a curving flamingo skeleton that's fine and slender as a question mark. Before I get too carried away checking out the cabinet full of prehistoric animal bones, I find Vanessa and sit down with her so she can tell me more about this extraordinary collection of images that have been made public for the first time ever. Alrighty. Hi, Vanessa. Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. Where are we right now? Uh, right now we're in the Australian Museum and we're in the reading room in the research library. Beautiful. So we're here to talk about Capturing Nature, which is a book and an exhibition on right now. Um, but I just wanted to go back to when this museum actually opened for the first time because there's some pretty awesome information in the book about that. And so it opened in the 1820s, is that right? It was founded in the 1820s. It opened its first public gallery in the 1850s. Okay, and is that the opening that 10,000 people showed up That's to? That's the one, yep. And oh, 10,000 people in the first week that the museum was open. In the first week, yeah. yeah. And when you think that Sydney's population was 40,000 at the time, that's pretty extraordinary. Extraordinary. Yeah. So at this stage when the museum first opened, sort of in like the 50s and 60s, 1850s and 60s, I should say, what was the state of the Australian public's knowledge about Australia's flora and fauna? Well, I guess um, lots of people were fascinated because, I mean, they could see it all around them. That wasn't that far out. I mean, Sydney was a small place and nature was all around you, even in the city. Um, but there wasn't that much known about um, where this fitted into the great European narratives of natural history. And, but there were a lot of people here who were working to find out. So what might have visited to the museum back then have seen and what, what sort of displays did we have on? Well this was the only museum in Sydney um, so it had everything. It had natural history, it had some Greek statues, it had a huge statue of Captain Cook, it had uh, explorers relics um, as well as stuffed 
um, and pickled specimens, bones, archaeology, wood. There was a lot here and it was pretty chaotic for a visitor to um, explore. Right, so they didn't quite have the organisation down for just Not yet. quite, not yeah. quite. And I guess the thing about that was that they didn't have anywhere to store anything, so everything was on display. Yeah, cool. So, uh, fast forward to now, what is the concept of the Capturing Nature exhibition that you've got on? Well, the Capturing Nature exhibition is really um, to show off this amazing collection of early photography. So, the, uh, the curators here started taking photos in the late 1850s, and um, I work in the archives, so we knew that we had this collection, but to to put it on display was an incredible opportunity just to show the beauty of these images as well as the fabulous stories about early Sydney signs that they hold. Yeah, one of those photos uh, is a really fantastic shot of a beaked whale skeleton that looks about as long as a bus uh, parked out on the museum's lawn and above it from a window is a bearded fellow who is he and why is he important to this story? Oh, he's, he is one of the main characters in this story. His name is Jared Kreft. He came, um, he was German by birth, but he had been working in Melbourne. And when he came to the museum in 1859, he brought a camera with him. And he's the f museum's first photographer. So was it his idea to start taking photos of the specimens? Uh, I think it was. So we don't exactly know, of course, because it's hard to know. Um, and people don't really record their um, private feelings about this stuff but he brought his camera and when he came here a man called um, Henry Barnes was already working here he was a taxidermist and articulator which is the person who makes skeletons um, and Henry Barnes seemed to be able to turn his hand to anything practical and he and Kreft together worked on the photography project and became experts but it took some um, it took some time and some trial and error yeah, so Henry Barnes is the one that, for the majority of the photos, I think, he's the one credited? Well, because we have a register and it's got Henry Barnes as the photographer in them, but I, from the research I've done, I think it was a truly joint project, so that Kreft was perhaps telling Barnes what to do, which photos to take, and Barnes was actually doing the mechanics. Yeah. So why did they decide to start taking photos when, you know, it was such a resource and time-heavy operation back then? I think they did because they could, and it was a new technology, they were having some fun playing with it, seeing its possibilities at the museum. I think Kreft had already seen, from what he'd seen in Melbourne, that um, photographs could be really useful tools for an ambitious curator who wanted to get word out about what he was doing. Um, and there were only five or six people working at the museum and they actually had a fair bit of leeway to have, have some fun and do some experiments. Yeah, and when you say Kreft brought a camera with him, what did that camera look like? Basically it's a, um, a big wooden box with a lens on the front. So super simple in some ways to operate. You put the glass plate in the back of the box and you remove the lens cap for the amount of time that you want to expose the plate for put the lens cap back on, take the glass plate out and go and develop it, which is a complex process in itself. But the mechanics of these things are very basic. Yeah, so but what could go wrong when you're Everything could go wrong, I think. <laughs> um, and I really love that about the photos that are in both the exhibition and the book, that you can see what did go wrong. So they could easily overexpose them because it depended on ambient light, um, time of year, how... Um, 
the chemicals that you were using were unstable and maybe you got the mix slightly wrong and so you can see in the plates that there are some speckles or there are, there are scratches on a lot of them and some of them are even broken so they've got chunks off the side. And then after you develop them, the emulsion could crack or it could peel. So we've got some of those too. Yeah. And you mentioned in that extract that you were reading at the start that quite often you can see, yeah, sort of the human imprint, I guess, uh, on some of these photos. What part of that fascinated you? You've got some really cool photos in there of sort of ghostly figures coming in who must have stepped into the shot for just a second and then stepped back out again. So why did you decide to include some of those photos with their imperfections? Oh, I think it's a hugely important part of the story. So these, these photos were not taken as art, they were taken as um, documentary evidence. And the, the human frailty that, you know, the side of someone's boots under the screen shows is just a really important part of the story and it's a lot of fun too to see those details that we didn't really see before we had these redigitized and we could blow them up really big and see um, and you can see sometimes that the background wobbles because the exposures were long and so things had to stay still. So coming back to Kreft, because it's a lot of this book is, is his story basically, what was he like as a, as a man and a scientist? Well, um, it's hard to know. Well, no, it's not that hard to know. We do know because um, he got himself into a lot of trouble because apparently he was fairly cantankerous. So as well as being ambitious and clever, um, and he did discover quite a few iconic Australian species for the first time. So you'll see some of those in the book. So the Australian freshwater crocodile, the lungfish, cassowary, like big important discoveries. But he appears to have been rather difficult to get on with um, and particularly not very good at managing up. So he didn't get on with the museum's trustees. So they were a group of establishment um, gentlemen who dabbled in science, who really ran this place. And um, I think that there was just a clash of um, ideas about what the museum was for and who was in charge. And Kreft lost in the end. Yeah, his departure from the position was quite hostile in the end, right? Very hostile and very sad too to think, um, you know, a man of such drive couldn't um, couldn't be couldn't be kept in this place. I mean, and then then the next the next um, curator who was called Edward Ramsey took over the photo projects and everything else, and really um, used the work that Kreft had done to drive the museum forward. So. Yeah, uh, and there's also, uh, I guess, Kreft was a little bit controversial in some cases because I, it, was it a rumour that he ate one of the last specimens of the pig-footed bandicoot on the banks of the Murray River to stay alive one well, freezing winter's night? I don't think it's a rumour. He wrote it in his diary. <laughs> <laughs> and I just think it's great, right? So we think of that as, oh, my God, what was he doing? These things are now extinct. But at the time, they were on these extended field trips and he was really hungry and you need to eat what's available. I guess one of the other amazing sort of things that he did was correspond with Charles Darwin and uh, you know during his tenure sort of coincided with the publication of The Origin of Species right? Yeah so I um, also I mean that's amazing too right Kreft was such a confident scientist that he would um, send his send his musings to Charles Darwin to get his opinion on various fossil and other finds um, but of course uh, Darwin's theories were not popular here with, as I said, the trustees were pretty conservative and they were all mostly good Christian gentlemen as well. And this was um, just, you know, 
way too much for them at the time. But, but because of the work that um, Kreft had done, particularly in fossils at Wellington Caves, which is another, um, which is also in the book, but it's, um, that led Kreft to really see that um, Charles Darwin's theories had, could be true. And so the audacity of a colonial scientist in um, correspondence with Charles Darwin, but also um, it was the work that he'd done at Wellington Caves that really led Kreft to um, see that Charles Darwin's theories were incredibly plausible in the Australian context. Yeah, and what were some of the important findings in those caves? So they, they were some of the first findings of Australian megafauna, so giant wombats, giant um, thylacine-like creatures, um, mixed in that cave with their modern ancestors. How did photography as a whole sort of um, technology affect scientific understanding of the world? Oh, so I think that um, scientists uh, were some of the first people to use photography and they were some of the first people to perfect the, the recipes and the techniques of photography because they could immediately see that um, Photography could let you see things that you can't see with the naked eyes, things that are too small, but also things that are too big. So you could see um, snowflakes, for example, but you could also see the moon and take pictures of the stars, which is um, incredible when you haven't seen that stuff before in a mechanical form. And I think that um, same way that Kreft could immediately see that he was a, himself a competent natural history illustrator, but that photography could make this much quicker and more accurate. Yeah, so the status quo before photography of sort of, I guess, um, uh, recording the natural world was this form of illustration, right? Yeah. So did photography come to replace it fully? Uh, no, no, still today scientists use um, illustrations because, of course, with photography you're capturing a single moment, but in, in an illustration you can capture all the moments and have an average view. Um, so you said before that the style of photos that were taken are basically documentary-like, right? Um, but are there any sort of photos that show a little bit of creativity or artistic flair, or is it very sober, straight, sort of scientific photography? Oh, no, they're not... They're and we call them scientific, but of course they're all individual works of... Um, I'm not going to say they're works of art because I think that they were produced as works of science, but they absolutely show a point of view and a, and a way of looking, and that's what's really um, fascinating and, and awesome about these. So, for example, the way that you might organise um, skulls on a piece of glass in order to take a photo of them. You know you could do them in the line, but they haven't. They've done them in circles, so they've got all these nice um, ways of arranging things. And then the way you set up a, you know, a cassowary, a stuffed cassowary, the way, the way that they have done it is just, um, it's got so much personality that it just can't be a mistake. Okay, yeah. a bit of artistic flair. Yeah. Love that. Um, so how many sort of plates did you go through to select, uh, you know, which photos you're going to put in the book? So we have a, a glass plate collection of 15,000 images, but in the period that we're looking at um, for the book and exhibition, there's about 2,500. Okay. How did you decide in that sort of, on that period of time? So we needed to um, keep it contained because it's, we wanted to be able to, you know, to have the narrative really clear and simple. So we chose, I chose, the um, end point is the point where they built their first photographic studio. And it's also the point where um, Barnes left the museum. Okay, cool. So it's quite a nice way to bookend it, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what were some of 
the photos that you're most excited to blow up and put on a wall when you were going through this massive archive? Uh, we looked for, um, of course we looked for the most beautiful ones because you can't go past the fact that some of these are really stunning images. Um, but we then looked for the ones that had the great stories behind them, so the ones that you already talked about with the boots in them or the man leaning out the window, because there aren't that many photos with people in them mm. in, these, um, in this set. So anything with a person in it was... Um, uh, we loved, and we just loved ones that also showed people doing things around the museum. So there's a, a couple of those too. So you can see the one where they're holding up the turtle on the grass in the museum, or they're um, hauling up the sunfish through the window. I mean, that's a fabulous photo. And also the other one of the sunfish with the man standing next to the sunfish up on the what do you call that thing, like a big pulley system. Kind of hoisted up. Yes, yeah. hoisted up, just to show the absolutely massive size of this thing and how mind-blowing it is to think that that came into Darling Harbour and was washed up on a mud flat and actually yeah. captured in this, you know, our big modern industrial city. Yeah, I absolutely love that photo of the sunfish sort of, I don't know, one or two stories in the air yeah. being hoisted up because yeah. it just tells a story in itself. So these massive fish just sort of floated into the harbour and the museum I think it's or? a pretty. it was a pretty unusual event even in the 1880s, but just in some flukes, uh, three or four months one summer, four different sunfish came into Sydney waters and two of them ended up at the museum. Wow, yeah. yeah, and they're just the most extraordinary looking creatures they as well. Are. Like if you've never seen one before, they're sort of like this round table-sized fish with tiny little fins and bizarre. I can't even describe them. You're just going to have to look at the photo because yes. yeah. they're so awesome. Um, so are there any other, other favourite images in there? Well, I love the, the ones that we finished the book with, which are the ones with Kreft with the manta ray because I just cannot get enough of the idea of Kreft sitting there. So this is a series of um, three photos of Kreft with this massive manta ray that had also been found in Sydney Harbour. So again, it's a, you know, I don't know, two metre sized manta ray and he's sitting next to it in the courtyard of the museum. So, but he's sitting next to it with his top hat on and then in the next image he's standing next to it reading a newspaper and then the third image he's um, standing just nonchalantly with his shirt sleeve rolled up, leaning against the wall. And I just, um, you know, I see the fish in all its glory and it's the fish back front side, but I also see Kreft in all his glory as well. So, yeah. you know, specimens and subjects. Yeah, they're yeah. absolutely beautiful photos yeah. as well. Yes. Um, if we could jump disciplines for a second, I guess, I'm sure the listeners to this podcast would love to hear about the Rare Books Collection because you look after that here as well, right? Yeah, so yeah. the... The book collection um, actually started in the 1830s because books were a really important tool for museum work for um, until, I mean, right into the present, which is why we're still here. But um, the rare books collection holds some really incredible specimens of early Australian natural history writing, early anthropology. Um, we have wonderful atlases. We have um, a full set of Gould's um, Birds of Australia with incredible illustrations um, and we have a recently we've also been doing a project to sort of try and uncover the indigenous material that's held within this library and that's been a real eye-opener too so within a, a well-known natural history library we found all this indigenous material so both by both about indigenous people of course because this is um, we're really strong in colonial 
history here, but also about, uh, by Aboriginal people. So word lists, which is really fascinating stuff. So we have a small but important collection of those and some more contemporary. So from the 1930s, actually a lot of, not a lot, but a, um, a collection of material by Aboriginal people that's really interesting. Yeah, fantastic. Mm. And is all of that sort of stuff in the Rare Books collection in some very high-tech, like, sealed-off, like, I don't know, I just picture it, like, you know, in one of those movies where it's, like, a heist <laughs> and you have to, like, break in and it's temperature-controlled? <laughs> You're going to have to break in. It was, um, <laughs> of course, it's temperature-controlled and it's under lock and key because it's a really valuable collection. But it is accessible. You can have a look in our catalogue and come in and um, view anything that you want to see. Yeah. What would be some of the most valuable items that you have in there? So the Goulds are very valuable, of mm. course, um, and the early natural history illustration and explorer's journal. So we have cook material as well. So that's also very valuable. Wow. I can mm. imagine you could just spend your entire life down mm. there and not get bored. That's mm. fabulous. Mm. But then again, we also, because I manage the archives as well, so we have some really incredible other um, early collections in the archives as well. So early illustrations and other early photography collections. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing collection. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Vanessa, I think you've tantalised people enough to uh, come down to the Australian Museum and see this exhibition. And if you can't get to Sydney to see it, then the book does an absolutely fabulous job at uh, showing those amazing photos and the incredible stories behind them. So thank you so much for your time chatting to us. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the Good Reading Podcast and coming along on that little excursion. Capturing Nature by Vanessa Finney is out now through New South Books. It's available at all good bookshops, including Good Readings online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.